I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I have with me a very special guest, Seth Cropsey. Seth, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, man. My pleasure. Seth is the founder and president of Yorktown Institute based in Washington, D.C. He served as a naval officer and as deputy undersecretary of the Navy and is the author of Mayday and Sea Blindness. I first heard your name in an article by Jerry Hendricks in The Atlantic discussing the state of affairs in the U.S. Navy and how it relates to specifically Southeast Asia. We're going to talk today about both the situation in Ukraine, as well as globally. And before we got started, you were talking about this ripple effect that could occur. I think for many people, they view what's happening in the Taiwan area and Ukraine as two distinct theaters. But it seems like you would agree there is this coalition of groups between Russia and China and Iran of these actors that are working against U.S. interests globally. Would you agree with that? Yes, and they're all located on the Eurasian continent, in which we have long, in which the United States has long had an interest in preventing hegemony that's counter to our economic and diplomatic and security interests. And so in regards to Ukraine specifically, we're in a bit of a pickle of wanting to support Ukrainian forces enough so that they stay independent they push back against Russia. But there seems to be a faction in the U.S. government that doesn't want to allow them, the forces, to actually cause a destruction of Russia or chaos there because of what the downstream effects could be. Does that seem correct to you? Well, I think the administration has tried to support Ukraine as much as it can, and that there are people within the administration who are concerned that level or a greater level of support would lead to an escalation that could have Russians fighting against Americans. So it's not stupid. 
but the story of the war for the past year and whatever is it, three months or so, is that without significant exception, the United States has not crossed a red line in arming the Ukrainians to attack Russia. And the Russians have not crossed a red line in attacking the supply of Western arms to Ukraine, despite nuclear brandishing and all that kind of stuff. But the essential restraints remain as in place today as they were in February of last year. And it seems like based on these leaked documents that have come to the surface recently, there's going to be this stalemate situation for the foreseeable future. Either Ukraine is getting ready for a big spring offensive. Russia has been digging in along their lines with defensive machinations. What is the end game here in your mind for Russia? Is there an exit ramp? Is this just going to continue to grind on? And Putin believes the time is on his side. Well, I would say that leaks from the intelligence community are as reliable as what's not leaked from the intelligence community. And as the intelligence community was got it wrong in the run-up to the war, which where a quick Russian victory was predicted, and now a slower Russian victory is predicted. And I... Oh, okay. So that's what some assessments are. But the Ukrainians have proven to be more resilient than anyone expected, maybe even more than they expected. And the defenses that the, the Russians have built along the line of contact that separates them from the Ukrainians are a static defense. And static defenses don't have a brilliant history. Witness Maginot and the Siegfried lines. So they can be flanked. They can be jumped. They can be pierced. I'm not predicting that, but I'm just saying, I'm only saying that I would not uh, rush to conclusions because the Russians have a static defense. Were you surprised by how things actually ended up on the battlefield when contact was made with Russia and Ukraine in terms of the failures of the Russian military and the abilities of the Ukrainian defenses? I wouldn't say I was surprised. I would say didn't expect that it would turn out quite as lopsided as it did. I expected that the Ukrainians would put up a pretty stiff resistance. And so that didn't surprise me. But the thing that surprised me more than anything was the, the ineptness of the Russian forces, of the arrogance in their uh, invasion plans, attacking along three axes, of their expectation that that, that their ground forces would be able to simply walk in and be, be greeted, be welcomed. And that kind of command arrogance was a bit surprising. Yes. And ultimately, the motivation for Putin in this is what exactly? Just creating more of a geographic buffer, a push against NATO expansion east? I think it's a combination of those. But I think that when, and I'm paraphrasing somebody else here who I don't recall, but I think it has it on, has it pretty much on target that Putin's main advisors are Peter the Great and, and Catherine the Great. And that he has, you know, I take him at his word when he says that the fall of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. And I think more than anything else, this is the invasion of Ukraine was, is intended to address that disaster, what he calls a disaster, 
to expand Russia's borders, to increase its economic productivity, its military capabilities, and with the inclusion of Belarus, and who knows what else happens if things don't turn out well in Ukraine, to expand Russia's borders closer to what they were when the Soviet Union went out of existence. Yes, cracking NATO is certainly part of that, but that's the twofer. The main point is increase the population and the productivity and the borders of the old, of old Russia. And it seems to have gone counter to that litany of reasonings that you just outlaid for us almost tit for tat in terms of any of those goals. It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the off ramp here? What's the exit ramp for him? Or does this just keep going until there's an internal coup? It seems as though his his greatest hope is that the West will be frightened by nuclear threats and will become disheartened by a stalemate and will eventually uh, wash its hands and say, you have to sue, tell Zelensky that he has to sue for peace and that the alternative is, is a cutoff of ammunition and weapons. Uh, I think that's what Putin is hoping for. And he may well view that as the off-ramp, but just because that's what he thinks doesn't mean that's what will happen. Do you believe that U.S. and European support for Ukraine is contingent on how their spring offensive goes? I think that the Ukrainians will do themselves tremendous amount of good to succeed and succeed famously. And that if, if there's no progress on the ground, or worse yet, a defeat, Russia turns back the counteroffensive, that they'll be in the NATO and the United States will be tested in a way that it hasn't been. And I would like you to go a little bit more in depth on why exactly U.S. and Western Europe are you know, critically threatened by this Russian incursion into Ukraine. Well, most important point is that that the West, that is to say NATO and the United States, have are defending a nation that was attacked contrary to our ideas of international order and a nation that had a nascent democracy. Not a perfect one. Not, a one, not one that was wholly free of corruption, but a nascent democracy. And that and the reason, in large measure, for that defense was the correct understanding that if Putin succeeded in using force to take another sovereign country, that he wouldn't stop there. And that the threat would then extend directly to NATO countries on the border of Ukraine, like Romania, for example. And and Poland and all the states that are now NATO members that were formerly Warsaw Pact states and which Putin would like to see back in the columns that they were before the Soviet Union fell. So, and I think that view is correct, that if Putin had simply been able to 
walk in and defeat the Ukrainians, that there is simply no chance that he would have said, okay, fine, we'll call it a day and go back home and leave NATO alone. And that's not, that was not in the cards. I, I don't think Putin ever saw it that way. And so we have a situation where NATO either hangs together or hangs separately. I mean, that's basically where things stand right now. I personally know my view on NATO was that it was a fairly weak symbolic organization up until this occurred. And it seems they've really been emboldened and strengthened and unified by this Russian, exactly counter to what Putin had hoped. Given the performance of the Russian military in this endeavor, is there any chance in conventional warfare that there would be any real contest between NATO and Russia in the near future? I think there's a chance, but I just think it's a remote chance because conventionally, NATO outclasses Russia significantly. Russia's best hope in a conventional warfare is that something goes amiss or that the threat of nuclear weapons gets NATO members who are who had become actively engaged to back off. But I don't see, I mean, they bomb their own cities. They use transportation networks that were in use, that were the primary means of transporting military equipment in World War I, as they say, rail lines. Their performance, they keep changing the, the high command and it keeps producing no result. Uh, this is not a, a ready for prime time military. You allude to this, but I, I want to revisit it in your last comment. Do you think the nuclear option is on the table for Putin? I think the threat of it is certainly on the table, but I think he also understands that there's not much he can do to unify NATO even more than it has already been unified than to use a tactical nuclear weapon. And then all bets are off. And that doesn't mean that the only option left for the West is using nuclear weapons in return. There are all there's this thing called horizontal escalation, where the West could go after very sensitive and key assets of Russia and do extraordinary damage without ever touching a nuclear weapon. Like, for example, sink their Pacific fleet, destroy it. No nukes. You mean our Pacific fleet, the US Pacific no, fleet? No, no, no. I mean destroy the Russian Pacific fleet. Oh, I see. Yeah. Or Go after the go after their naval their fleet in general, in the north, in the Pacific, in the Mediterranean, such as it is. I mean, I, there are all kinds of options out there. It's not. It, it, I think it's a misread, a misreading to assume that a the use of a tactical nuclear weapon uh, can only be countered by. Uh, using the same weapons against them, and that would lead to strategic nuclear weapons. I mean, no, it's a possibility, but I think it's an extremely remote possibility. It's not in Putin's interest. It doesn't seem to be in anybody's interest. Do you foresee a scenario where there are U.S. boots on the ground in directly engaging, have, directly engaging with Russian forces? I think it's unlikely. The Ukrainians are doing pretty well. If there are things that ought to be changed here, it's the pace at which 
the Ukrainians receive the weapons and the ammunition they need to to conduct a successful counteroffensive. I don't think we're doing enough. And I think the administration often shows itself of two minds. One, in sending the material due and in making the statements that the president does. And the other, in moving slowly and in, in doing all of the things it says that it promises to do. I mean, the Abrams tank is an example of that. It's not, it's not going to be available very quickly. And it takes time to train and all this, all these things. Well, there's a old Latin expression, Festina uh, Lente, make haste slowly. And that sort of characterizes the U.S. response so far. I mean, I'm not saying that the U.S. that U.S. policy has done poorly in assisting the Ukrainians. I'm just saying that it's that the reach consistently extends beyond the grasp. Yeah, I know that. The last that I heard was it looked like the fall for those Abrams tanks actually be put into the... That would be fortunate. I mean, that would be soon. You think oh, compared to your internal assessment? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but other outstanding questions there are air power and combat aircraft. And that's simply been, that's just been a, a subject that administration's not willing to act on. And yeah, that seems to be a red line for the administration. Yeah, which I think is a mistake, but we'll see. Maybe missiles are, maybe Ukrainian missiles supplied by us and the Europeans are sufficient to deny the Russians the, the ability to maneuver uh, or control the airspace over the battlefield. But we'll just have to wait and see. Why do you think it's a mistake? Do you think because seeding air superiority to the Russians ultimately is a strategic advantage? Well, it's certainly a tactical one. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. In this case, I think it's a strategic one as well. It's hard to uh, conduct successful ground operations if you're being chewed up from the air. What's your assessment, been of China's support or lack thereof of Russia's incursion? Well, I think China would like to see the Russians emerge, see the Russians win. But I don't think that China wants to get into the into worse. Oh, I don't think China wants conditions to worsen between the United States and itself. And and to the extent that they have helped, it's been balanced and delicate, and underscored to anybody watching, which is to say the whole world, the who is the superior power between Russia and China. And I think the Chinese find that that's perfectly acceptable. So it's the war is a good thing for the Chinese from the because it's got the United States engaged and who knows what the outcome is going to be. And if things turn out as China hopes, as the Chinese rulers hope, it will expose a vulnerability in, in the Taiwan Strait. And if it's, a, if it's a real washout, as I mentioned when we started talking, it's a, a leg up that the Chinese hadn't anticipated it, it, as far as their plans for Taiwan. But doesn't the idea that 
NATO coalesced and the U.S. has provided robust defense or support of Ukraine, does that cut against China moving on Taiwan on some level? Well, at some level, I think you're right. But the the, the Taiwanese are an island about the size of New Hampshire with a population of 23 million or so. And there's no land routes over which supplies can go. So everything has to come by sea. So that advantage that Ukraine has in population and in its accessibility by land, the Taiwanese lack. So, yeah, the political cohesion in the West is not something that would please Xi Jinping. But the geographic and military differences between Taiwan's, between the supply of Taiwan and the supply of materials for Ukraine are huge. And they militate in, in Ukraine's favor, not Taiwan's. It is striking. It seems like the only issue that there is bipartisan support of is China's a bad actor that has to be held in check these days, even supporting Ukraine, it appears like in DC. Yes, I think that's right. American political leadership has made a, has called attention properly to China's ambitions around the world, to its military spending, to the tremendous increase in its naval capabilities, to its effort efforts to establish bases, successful efforts to establish bases across the Indian Ocean to Africa, to its economic interests and security, limited security forays to Europe. So those things have been gotten the attention that they deserve. And I think that one of the outcomes of that is that there is a far better understanding of China today than there was, say, 15 or 20 years ago. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. What are the strategies that unify Russia, China, and Iran outside of just being against Western demographics? Democratic. There are there actually unified, aligned, geographic, strategic initiatives that they all agree on, or is it purely we want to have a counterbalance to what we see as the the West? I think it's a, a shared desire to see the United States exit Eurasia, go so everywhere from from the West Pacific to to Central Asia to the Middle East, and of course, to Europe itself in the form of NATO. I think that those three states share common interest in seeing the United States exit and step down from this position as the world's great power. So it's a, a sphere of influence they want total control over and the U.S. to vacate what is their foothold beachhead since, I guess, post-World War II. Yeah, it's a bit, I, I would say it goes a little bit beyond that because the, the, the other fundamental issue here is what kind of a world do we have? Do we have a world where 
aggression against an independent sovereign power is acceptable kind of behavior? And do we have a world where the seas are held to be common and usable by everybody, or one which certain countries' shipping is allowed through certain drop points, but other countries are not? Is it a world where markets, where free markets are the, the way the way people conduct business, or is it sort of leaning in the mercantilist direction that the Chinese favor? So it, those are not separate questions from the point you raised about sphere of influence, but they're not exactly the same thing. It's not simply geography. I don't think you meant to require simply geography, but the spheres of influence broadly understood means what kind of order reigns in the world. Yeah, it seems like in a post-World War II history that we've had this amazing wealth creation and globalization and people have all benefited dramatically. And it seems like the deal has been the U.S. agrees to keep the seas open and to keep aggression in check nominally. And in return, we get GDP and we share that with other countries that participate. It seems like China, Russia, and Iran and, and some other actors no longer want to participate in that rules-based world, and they want to push back against what has been the state of play for the last 70 years. Yeah, I think you're right. So even though the rules-based world has been is inseparable from China's export markets, which have which led its growth. If the United States, if it wasn't a rules-based uh, international order, and it was sort of more like the Mediterranean in the 15th century, China would have had to worry about shipping, about bringing raw materials in by ship and exporting the finished goods by the same means. It had been a very different situation, but we maintained the... <laughs> We were the leading proponents of and uh, supporters of access to the global commons. Benefited China. I mean, the, the growth they've experienced from the 50s until today is astronomical. You're talking about you know, close to double-digit year-over-year GDP growth. They, sure. they went from third world to first world in a generation. Almost. Two I mean, generations. their per capita GDP is nothing they want to talk about, but... God knows what it actually is, but yeah. Yeah. Well, we have some idea of their population and some idea of their GDP, so we can kind of figure that out. Yeah. Although their population numbers seem to be like someone maybe cooked the books a little bit, but but I directionally, I agree yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would like to hear commentary on, it's interesting to me, clearly Putin and Ukraine, it is an emotional thing for him. He believes that it is part of Russia. Clearly, this is a, a parallel with what she believes with Taiwan. Do you think China makes a move on Taiwan in the near future? I think it's possible. I also think that it's preventable. As I mentioned earlier, it becomes more possible if the United States backs down in Ukraine. Then I think things are going to get very messy, but and not only in Taiwan. But again, there's a, a gulf between what we say and what we're actually doing. The president has 
good things to say about Taiwan and its defense. Uh, both the Republican and the previous Democrat, Democratic Speaker of the House have had meetings with President Tsai Ing-wen, and that's all very good. But on the other hand, show me the money. Where is this? Where? What's the outcome here? Well, sporadic weapons deliveries to Taiwan, not nearly sufficient. A defense budget, and in particular, a naval budget that is in relative terms decreasing because it doesn't it doesn't keep up with inflation. And if we were more serious, or I should say serious, about defending Taiwan, we'd be spending a lot more money on improving our, enlarging the Navy, improving its ability to, for example, break blockade, right, or prevent an amphibious attack or project power to Chinese command modules on the mainland, then we're not doing any of that. So again, there's a, a, a gulf between what we say and what we're actually doing. And I think it's a dangerous one. What was the last large-scale naval engagement the U.S. participated in? World War II, right? Yes. And do you think in a, on a conventional naval battle level, where does the U.S. stack up today against China, in your opinion? Well, these submarines can't compare with ours. In only one sense can they compare, and that is in number. But in terms of equipment, training of experience, weapons, sensing device, I mean, all across the board, stealth, so on and so forth. The contest with the Chinese in underwater warfare is leans heavily in the U.S. direction. But how likely is that? Well, we have aircraft carriers and SERPs. We have cruisers that are intended for air defense and destroyers and eventually frigates. The surface Navy has a particular issue in a fleet-to-fleet engagement were there to be one in the West Pacific because of the massive number of Chinese missiles. So the Navy is trying to figure out ways to, to counter that. And this idea of distributed maritime operations where you have very you have much smaller vessels, but far more numerous is is one approach. At the same time, a matchup between fleets whether is going to be is something that one can plan for, but the prior action is what is our strategy? What is the United States' strategy for deterring and, if necessary, defeating China? in the conflict, and that conflict would be a naval one. We are not going to send the 101st Airborne over China and drop army soldiers into China to be slaughtered by hordes of Chinese troops. Not happening. There are all kinds of questions that, that should be addressed and have not been addressed, like what is the role of our allies? What are, what would our objectives be? How would we accomplish them? 
do we have enough ships of the right kind in order to accomplish that? And those questions have not been answered. I mean, I, I think even more fundamentally, outside of your circle of experts, and now that I've been following you and other people, I don't even think people are asking that question. I don't even know if they know to ask it. They just assume that we have superiority in this theater when we really, I mean, I know Russia's got a smaller Navy. They have very advanced submarine warfare. But in terms of volume, quantity, the PLA has larger numbers of surface combat vessels than we do, correct? Yes. Including they now have aircraft carriers, right? Right. Again, in a ship-to-ship matchup, our aircraft carrier against their aircraft carrier plus the escorts for each, I think that's, I'm pretty sure how the outcome, what the outcome would be. But that's not, we're not, we're not fighting the way the the Greeks and the Trojans did, where they each one, in in one place in the Iliad, each one chooses a particular champion and they agree that they'll abide by the hand-to-hand combat of two combatants. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about large numbers of ships, submarines, allies, Seaborne commerce, amphibious, possibility of amphibious attacks, possibility of blockades. All that needs to be thought through with the specific objective of producing a a strategy. What do we do? What's the approach going to be? And it seems like across successive administrations, there's been a pivot towards Asia, understanding the importance of it from a commerce perspective and strategically But simultaneously, the Navy has been being pretty consistently hollowed out. And we know you, how do you hold both those thoughts in your head simultaneously? I know. I can find somebody else to answer that question. (laughs) I brought you on to answer this question. Well, no, I mean, look, uh, what are we about? Is it primarily an effort to break a blockade, to prevent one from being, to prevent a successful one? Is it to sink the Chinese fleet? Is it, and if you do so, how do you do it? And, or is it to, for example, to cut off the choke points through which Chinese shipping between mainland China and Europe passes? There's a huge amount of traffic that goes through the, the, the Southeast Asian archipelagos. And that's subject to being cut off. And if you cut China off commercially, then it's in trouble. But what's the plan? What do we do that? Do we sink it? We try we sink their fleet? We break the blockade. We take the war to the Chinese ports and destroy their command centers and their repair facilities and their ability to build more ships. Do we think this would be a the kind of do we plan on a on a an operation that would last for a year, for five years. Some of the questions have been addressed, but only over the long term, like AUKUS, for example, the US and the UK and Australia. But the submarines that we're talking about for AUKUS, if they're available in 10 years, I'll be shocked. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a, that is a long way. I mean, it's admirable. It is. And, and it is it's, admirable. It's, it's, a, it's a sign to China 
that there's a unified front there. I think having more friends in the region is better. But this these will take a long time to get spun up. Yeah, and in the meantime, we're retiring old submarines. Yeah, divest to invest that, policy. Yeah, at a rate that they're that we cannot replace them. So our submarine numbers are going to be diving for a decade about before they begin to rise if plan if the current plans stay in place. Current plans, of course, can always be changed up or down, but there doesn't seem to be any inclination to change them up. When we were talking about Ukraine, you asserted that it was critical for the West, I'll just use that term, to push back against Russian and for security purposes. Do you believe the same in regards to Taiwan? Yes. If Taiwan become were to become a or fall under control of the of Xi Jinping, it would allow the the PLAM, China's Navy, unobstructed access to the central to the so-called second island chain. It would allow China to become a far greater threat to our allies to the no- ally to the north, Japan, and to our allies to the south, the Philippines, to Korea, South Korea. So, and all to say, not to mention Guam, where a an alarming fraction of our military is all sitting in one rather small place. The in World War II, the Japanese controlled Taiwan and used it to launch their attacks on the Philippines. 40,000 strong. It's right smack dab in the middle of the first island chain. And can, and from it can be controlled the straits and the passageways, oceanic passageways into the Central Pacific. And it would be fanciful to think that China's ambitions would cease once they were were they to succeed in, in taking Taiwan? Yeah, I think it would be a signal to the Chinese that they can run roughshod over most of Southeast Asia. Well, yeah, and maybe Hawaii. Certainly Guam. Yeah, and I mean, there's a reason Japan is so... I think there are doubts of the U.S., you know, our ability to make good on our promises in that part of the world. All you have to do, I mean, all they would have to do, all the Japanese need to do is look at our fleet size and look at the the defense budget and the way it's apportioned between the military services. And do you think that's a function of just inertia or power grabbing away from the Navy or the fact that these Afghanistan and Iraq have been largely ground oriented? Both. Yeah. And we focused on, on ground land warfare. Um, it's receding now, but on the global war on terror. And we're still, there's still a, a gap between our understanding of China as a, an economic and diplomatic problem and our understanding of China as a military one. Otherwise, I mean, yeah, Congress revises up the administration's defense budget requests. So there's a sign of awareness there, but it's not enough. It's simply not enough. And we don't take the possibility of 
real conflict with China seriously. Um, that's clear from the exercises, from wargaming, from issues that we've already discussed, like strategy or the lack of one, resources. The whole, the whole approach is still looks like a peacetime approach. If we had to resupply American forces or allied forces fighting in the West Pacific, where would the merchant ships come from? Where would the logistical capability to send fuel, ammunition across Pacific? It's a long trip. We don't have it. It isn't there today. If there's a, a conflict like the one that the that a think tank in Washington had a war game a month ago or so, and we were to lose two carriers, let's say they weren't lost. Let's just say that they were damaged. So where are they going to be fixed? And who's going to fix them and how, how repair them? And how long is it going to take? And where is the where is the capacity here or anywhere? to build more ships as ones are sunk. That's what happens in war. You, you lose things. So if you don't replace them, then you just look at the trajectory and you know when you have to wave the white flag. We're not doing anything about that. Yeah, I think I was actually in New Orleans visiting the World War II Museum with my son a few weeks ago. And just the scale of the industrial production that occurred within America and the the volume of materiel that was made and delivered to enable all that to, I mean, I don't think we have that infrastructure anymore. No, on the merchant marine side, where, where do we get the people to, even if we could magically produce the ships, they need people, they need sailors. And the Merchant Marine Academy is, is in a horrible need of, uh, of renovation. It's falling apart. That's not a way to attract first-rate students. I mean, they do a first-rate job, but it's just another example of unpreparedness. So as we wind this conversation down, first off, I want to thank you. If you were to advocate for a policy or a strategy involving China and what do you think the U.S. posture should be, what would it be? Well, I think the first, I'm going to, I'm going to sidestep your question, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you while I'm doing it. I think the first, the most important question is, what is our objective? What is the goal? And the old formulation, the old, we win, they lose, it's fine. It's good for rhetorical purposes, but doesn't answer the question, what do you actually do if there's a conflict? So if we could, the place to start is by answering, by asking, and then answering that question with greater specificity than now exists. What is the plan? What is the strategy? Once we have that, and we talked a little bit about various possibilities, but once we have an answer to that, then we can start walking back from that answer or walking ahead and saying, well, this is what we need in order to make that strategy work. And so I think it's, I'm reluctant to say, just throw more money at it, give the Navy more money. I, I don't think that's, I mean, I think that's helpful, but it's necessary, but it is hardly sufficient. Big question, Seth. Seth, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I'd love to do another one 
um, and continue the conversation. If people are interested in connecting with you, we'll include links, but the best way for them to keep up with your writings and thoughts, would it be through the Yorktown Institute or? Yeah, yorktowninstitute.org. One, okay. one word, Yorktown Institute. Easy to reach me. Well, I want to thank you again for taking the time. This has been great. And your insights are really helpful to people like me trying to understand what's going on in the world. So I appreciate it. And thank you for joining the conversation. Uh, good talking with you, Ben. And I'm happy to continue the discussion. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.